0: Invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ezekiel thirty-eight. Continuing in our study of Revelation chapter twenty, last week we exposited verses seven through fifteen, where we saw a time of judgment. Satan was loosed from the bottomless pit for a thousand year uh, after the thousand-year reign of Christ for a little time. And he was loosed to deceive the nations, after which the Lord destroyed them with the word of his mouth. Death and hell gave up their dead. The dead stood before the Lord. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. In Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, that being what the Bible calls the second death. It was... A message that reminded us of God's justice. It reminded us that God wins, but it also reminded us that in the midst of God winning, there are going to be many casualties. It compelled us to think toward that end and to desire that those around us would be saved. In the midst of that passage of Scripture, we came across a couple of verses which I didn't spend very much time on, but which the Bible spends a little bit of time on. In Revelation chapter 20 verses 7 and 8, the Bible says this, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And we found uh, that Satan, having been loosed after this 1,000 years of peace and prosperity under our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that there is this gathering to battle, this great and final rebellion, where we reminded ourselves that it is not um, the, the poor conditions of man, it is not poverty, it is not lack of opportunity, and that brings about evil in the world but it is man's own sinful heart that brings evil into this world and at that time we we saw this phrase Gog and Magog come up in fact uh, we we find here the only other time outside of Ezekiel 38 and 39 where Gog or Magog does come up naturally if we find Gog and Magog come up in Revelation chapter 20 and it has not exi- we have not seen it anywhere in the Bible except in Ezekiel 38 and 39 we have to believe that there's a link we have to believe that there is a link between the two. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to study this link. This week, we're just going to talk more generally about what happens in Ezekiel 38 and 39 as it relates to Gog and Magog. And then when uh, next time we're together in a couple of weeks, uh, we are going to then talk about when, how Gog and Magog might play into um, events when those events might take place, and then more specifically, who Gog and Magog might be. So that's coming next time. We're going to talk, we'll dance around it a little bit. We'll talk about it a little bit, but it'll be next time where we talk a little bit more in depth about some of those things, what what we can speculate, what we might know, and what we don't know. And we'll talk all, all about that together. So it is in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which teach about a unique time in history surrounding, uh, uh, well... A time that is actually pretty largely debated, but it's in those chapters that we we find Gog and Magog, and it's what I want to introduce you to today. So let's get started. If you're there in Ezekiel chapter 38, we're going to begin in verses 1 through 6, and the Bible says this, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, and this is Ezekiel writing, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, And prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God. Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back, and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shields. Shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togarmah. Of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. So we read here about a prophecy specifically against Gog, the land of Magog, who is described in the King James as the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, in other translations, it, it speaks of Meshech, Tubal, and Rosh uh, being an actual other nation. But the word Rosh there, whereby we get chief, makes a lot more sense, I believe, as chief prince here, as we see it in the text, and that's how the King James translators translated it. These names bring us back. What, where are all these names coming from? We get Meshach and Tubal and, and Gog and Magog and uh, 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 Togarma and all of these different names. Those all come back to a passage of scripture that we generally call the table of nations and it's found in Genesis chapter 10 describing the breakup of nations from Noah's three sons Shem Ham, and Japheth. So in Genesis chapter 10, verses uh, 1 and 2, we read this. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Medai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. So here in Genesis chapters 10, verses 1 and 2, we find the names Magog, Tubal, and Meshech, and they are all derived from the family of Japheth. Now, if we were to study all of Genesis 10 and this table of nations and the genealogy, what we'll generally find is a breakup of nations among these three sons. Some of these nations we can very clearly connect because of the biblical accounts of them. as we, we study the biblical accounts. Others we would connect through various historians, Josephus, Herodotus, and such. So the Bible tells us that Ham's sons were named Cush, Mitzrayim, Phut, And Canaan. Well, Mitzrayim is actually the Hebrew word for Egypt. So Mitzrayim became Egypt, and we know that Canaan, of course, being the father of the Canaanites, many of the different Canaanitish tribes or the Canaanitish nations—the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Arkites—all of those nations that, when the Bible talks about Israel going into the land of Canaan, and you see that list of all of the different nations that are in the land of Canaan, those. They're all they're they're all family. They're all different tribes, different nations from the same lineage. That would be the sons of Ham, and of course we know that Canaan was the grandson of Ham, and he was cursed by Noah in those uh, in in those early chapters, and so out of Ham comes comes. Mithraim and Canaan, also Cush, which forms the land of Ethiopia, and then Foot, which is the land of Libya. So we find Ham. Out of Ham comes those Canaanitish lands, and then uh, effectively Africa comes from the line of Ham. Then we have Shem, and Shem has a son named Asher, and the Bible tells us that Asher built a city called Nineveh. Naturally, Nineveh becomes the capital of the Assyrians, right? Asher, the Assyrians, Assyrians. And so we have the Assyrians coming from the line of Shem. We would also see the Chaldeans and the Syrians and the Israelites. They all come from the line of Shem, the Shemites. So when you hear about the anti-Semitism, it's of course rooted in anti-Israel, but the idea of what is the Semite? What is Semitism? What is the Semite? It's the line of Shem, the Shemites, that's what they're talking about there and uh, naturally speaking as the Assyrians, Chaldeans and such, there's not a lot of those that are around anymore, Syria is still around um, though we would debate how many of them are actual Syrians, finally then there was Japheth and Japheth generally occupied the north quarters and became what we would generally understand to be the European and Asian peoples today, Caucasians and Asians, Europe and Asia to settle. And you see there that as we look at a large portion of, of that map there, that Magog, Tiris, Meshech, Tubal, Gomer, these uh, that we see, they're all coming from the region surrounding the Black Sea, which you see there on the west, and the Caspian Sea on the east. And then just above that going into um, uh, what we would call today Russia, the Ukraine, and um, several of the the, the Eastern stems. So we, we see within this, this brief survey of the Table of Nations, Gomer is connected by Josephus. So Josephus takes several of the names from the Table of Nations, and he tells us who they believe the ancestors of those were. And Josephus said that Gomer was a group of people living in modern-day Turkey called the Galatians. So when we look at the region of Galatia, who, of course, Paul wrote to the churches in Galatians, uh, that is what Josephus said were the people, the descendants of Gomer. Medei was Media, which, of course, was one half of the Medo-Persian Empire. um, And that that was what Medei would be. Javan became the area that we now know to be Greece. Josephus says Magog became a group called the Magogites, and it was called in their time the Scythians. And if you recall from Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, Paul spoke of the Scythians as one of the major groups of foreigners that were in the world at this time. Uh, They were nomadic people that generally congregated around the Black Sea. And so we have that group called the Scythians, and that is who Josephus says was Magog. Now, Meshech and Tubal, everywhere in history where we see Meshech and Tubal, we see them mentioned together. The, all the way back to the Assyrian writings, we can find Meshech and Tubal together, and they were considered to be the enemies of the Assyrians during the time of of the Assyrian Empire, during the time of Assyrian dominance. They're nearly always mentioned together, and we would understand them again to occupy the north country uh, into Europe and North Asia. And so this is where... Ezekiel 38 really helps us so we have these this table of nations and we have the, the general spread and we see that out of Japheth came all of these nations generally speaking um, that are being spoken of here and um, uh, of course then we see how Josephus connects them and we can get a generalized region from which these, these nations come Gog is said here to be from the land of Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So now we're seeing Magog, Meshach, and Tubal being combined together into one general group, Magog being the land in which they occupy, Meshach and Tubal being the descendants uh, or, or the family lineage, and then the leader of them being a person or uh, some sort of entity, some sort of something called Gog. Perhaps that over the course of time these all became one And so, characteristically then, what we would understand, and we'll nail this down a little bit more next week, is that we're talking about people from the northern regions, from Japheth, from Europe and Asia, from north of Israel, around the Black and Caspian Seas. Notice that Ezekiel 38, there are other people groups mentioned in connection with Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, namely Persia. Modern day Iran, Ethiopia, of course, still exists. Libya, which still exists. Gomer, which is generally understood to be, it's another part of Japheth, and would generally understood to be the people, say, of Georgia, Armenia, Togarma, which is also the north quarters, perhaps around the Black Sea, uh, the Ukraine, and um, Estonia, and, 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 and those countries. What we would find then is a confederacy of nations that represent every direction around Israel. And this, I believe, is really the important part. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk about who Gog and Magog might be, and we'll connect it to some geopolitical events of the day and such, and and those connections should not be lost on us. But I don't necessarily think that that's the primary point. I think the primary point here is that every single direction is mentioned when we're talking about these nations that come against Israel. Libya would be North Africa. Ethiopia would be Eastern Africa. Um... We have the the area of Persia, which is modern day Iran, and that, that and east of Israel. Then we have uh, Gomer and all of the descendants of Japheth, which are north of Israel. So we see north, south, east, and effectively west coming against the nation. And we need to understand that that is what is happening—an alliance with these other nations of which Ezekiel speaks—that is going to bring about a circumstance whereby all four directions are are placing their target on the nation of Israel. So now we have this generalized setting in place that that there's going to be this drawing of these nations against Israel, that there's going to be a confederacy of nations that includes nations on every side of Israel, and that lays the foundation, lays the setting of which we continue beginning in verse 7 of Ezekiel 38, and the Bible says this, be thou prepared. And prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. So God tells Gog that he would put a hook in his jaw, we read that already, and bring him forth with his armies and those other nations, this confederacy of nations, and after many days Gog would be visited and in the latter years he would come into the land that is described as having been brought back from the sword and gathered out of many people God specifically says that this is the mountain of Israel which had always been a waste but which at this time will be a land wherein is safety the idea of it being a waste is that it's always been a land of war it's always been a land of conflict but at the time when Gog and his allies are going to come against the land it will be a land at peace and notice the, the covenantal Ideas that we see here. He said that it was brought back from the sword, that there was peace, that it was a land that was gathered out of many people, right? This sounds very similar to all of God's promises that we're reading about in Jeremiah right now. All of God's promises, as we've studied them in the prophetic context, of God promising that He's going to regather His people out of the nations and bring them back to the nation. This was the promise of the millennium, right? This is, uh, as we talked about, Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 16, and the promise that the nation of Israel, that the distinction of the nation would transition from uh, Egypt's redemption to this second redemption, where they're redeemed from the north, where they're regathered again, and all of those promises. So we're seeing some of that same language, and again, we'll talk about that next time as to how that might connect and, and what we can learn about that as it relates to the timing of these events. But I hope you see what is happening here. God indicates that this confederacy of nations would be formed at some time. And in the latter days, another word that speaks towards the end times of some sort. In the latter days, Gog would be visited and compelled. We, We do think about what's happening in Revelation 20, right? That Satan is loosed for a time and that Gog and Magog are compelled, and so we have this idea that Gog will be visited, and then he'll be compelled in the latter end. By contrast here, however, it seems as though Gog and Magog is not only around at the time, but that there's an implication here that at the time that he will be drawn toward this conflict, it's almost as if, and and talking about the latter days and the things that are going to happen at the latter days, it's almost as if we see a contrast here Perhaps a, a previous or an early campaign of Gog and Magog that took place and then there's, it's going to be reminiscent of a latter attack or a latter campaign that will take place at a different period of time. There seems to be a message of contrast here is what I'm saying that Gog and Magog will go up at a time where the land is at peace, perhaps contrasted with a time when they went up when the land was at war or when the land was in devastation. Either way, this Confederate army will in this time of peace come up against the mountains of Israel, the Bible says, like a storm. We continue in verses 10 through 12. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take a spoil and to take a prey to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. So God gets significantly more specific here about what is going to go on in the mind of this leader, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, a man named Gog of Magog and into his mind it will enter that he will see this land that is at peace with the, these people that have been gathered from all nations and that he will go into this land of unwalled villages. He will see them because they have no walls. They have no bars. They have no gates and he will take a spoil. He will take a prey. He will see perhaps their natural resources, perhaps their, their, um, their wealth, perhaps their prosperity, and he is going to get into his mind to go and to overtake that because the people are wealthy and comfortable and happy. We continue in verse 13. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and take a great spoil? So Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish, at the time of Ezekiel's writing, were the great leaders of trade and of of the merchants of the day in this time in history. To this end, Ezekiel seems to be using them as a representation of those merchants in the time in history when Gog of Magog will do these things. As Gog gathers his armies to come against Israel, it's seems as though the merchants will not necessarily be opposed to it. They'll ask about it, but, but uh, they have no part in it directly. They're going to stay out of his way. They're willing to see this dramatic action take place, and um, they, they uh, ask as if uh, you're going to do this okay, uh, as God continues to add clarity to what's happening here. In other words, the idea is that the armies of the world will come against this nation These armies of Gog and this confederacy of nations will come against Israel and simultaneously the merchants will will be fine with what is going on or the other element of world power, right? We have an element of world power that is um, physical power and then we have an element of world power that is economic power and the economic power will not be troubled. God continues to add clarity to the situation as we read. The Bible says, Therefore, son of man, verse fourteen, prophesy and say unto Gog, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people um, of Israel shall dwell uh, dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land and shall be, and uh, it shall be in the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog. Before their eyes. So God expresses here that He is going to allow this thing to take place. He is going to allow Gog to be drawn toward the land. And God specifically says He is going to do so in order that He might be sanctified in Gog. Be sanctified before the eyes of the heathen. So God becomes what we might consider to be an avatar of God's character. His actions and God's response to them are going to become an example to the world of God's righteousness, of God's judgment, of who God is. And in this, we perhaps see a situation that is similar to what happened with Israel just before the Exodus. When God told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 5... And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So we see this example of God doing this in in Egypt's day where God says, I'm going to go and I'm going to present my righteousness before Egypt and Egypt is going to reject it. And I'm going to lead them into a circumstance whereby they will reject my offerings, whereby they will reject my authority so that I might show myself strong through them. Their their judgment is going to become an example to the world of my judgment and my righteousness. And we see this very same thing in this day that Gog of Magog and Magog itself is going to become an example to the world of God's righteousness, an example to the nations of of God's holiness and of God's power and of God's might. Now take special note of this similarity because it might just matter when we're trying to connect the dots of all of this teaching. We continue in Ezekiel 38, verses 17 through 23. The Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he, still speaking to Gog, right? Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face... For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground and I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him and overflowing rain and great hailstones fire and brimstone thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord so God gives an overview of the concept at hand here, and he's going to speak more directly to it at the beginning of Ezekiel 39, which we'll cover as well. We're not going to cover the last portion of Ezekiel 39. We'll do that next time we are together. But the Bible says that Gog will come against the land. God will fight back against Gog. I hope that my G versus duh is, is being clear here. God will fight back against Gog, and Gog will be destroyed in fire and in brimstone and mountains will be leveled and uh, all of of the the nation will be destroyed and the whole world will know. The many nations will know that God is the Lord. So how is this going to happen? Well, let's read verses 1 through 12 of Ezekiel 39. The Bible says this, Therefore thou son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel and I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and I will cause thine arrows to fall out of thine right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And I will send a fire on Magog, and among them... Now Magog, remember, is the region from which Gog comes. I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken and they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows and the hand staves, and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. So shall they take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any of the forests, for they shall burn the weapons with fire and they shall spoil the those that spoiled them, and robbed those that robbed them, saith the Lord God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea. And it shall stop the noses of the passengers. And there shall they bury Gog in all his multitudes, and they shall call it the valley of Haman Gog. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them, That they may cleanse the land. So we find in the King James, at least, other translations are dramatically different from this on a few points. But we see here that Gog will come with what we would understand to be all but one sixth of his full might against Israel from the north. And when he does so, he will be utterly defeated in a valley which is called the Valley of Haman Gog and on the mountains, which we might presume to be the Golan Heights. We, we, We will talk more about that next week. The valley of Hamon Gog, literally meaning the valley of the multitude of Gog, it will be within this valley that they will be destroyed. And Magog, the Bible says the land from which he comes and the isles which lived uh, carelessly, they, that Magog will have the fire of heaven fall upon it and will be destroyed with fire. And the Bible says that the people of, of Israel will come out that it will take that they will have enough wood from the weapons of war that were, were fallen, that were, were dropped when Magog was destroyed and Gog was destroyed on that day to light their fires for seven full years, and that it will take seven full months for them to be able to bury all of the dead from this destruction. Ezekiel 37 will go on to link these events to the utmost fulfillment of God's promises in Israel. And as I mentioned, we'll talk more about that. Next time. So we have this detailed account of what God is going to do with Gog of Magog here and all of those nations that would come against Israel. Now, next time we're together, we'll answer a couple of questions as best we can. And those questions are going to be first and foremost. When will these things happen? And second, who is Gog and who is Magog? And we'll hope that we can give you some manner of satisfaction. uh, As I'm going to uh, say next time, the nice thing about a sermon like that is I can't be wrong because no one knows, right? So it's a little bit of a speculation sermon, but we will walk through um, some of the elements of that uh, put some pieces together, talk about what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, where things might fall into place, and speculated about it a little bit together. But for today, in the time that we have left, let's draw a little bit of application. I'm only going to give you one point, and then we're going to talk about it through a few verses. And the point is simply this. It's the point that is being made in Revelation 20. Uh, and Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, particularly Ezekiel 38 and 39, don't lose sight of the point. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't get so caught up in who is Gog of Magog. Don't get so caught up on when are these things going to happen that we lose sight of the results. And the results are this. All the world will know that the Lord is God. The only question is how each man will relate to that knowledge. That's the question. The question is not, the, the operative question is not who is Gog. The operative question is not who is Magog. The operative question is not where is Meshech and Tubal? The operative question is how do you relate to the promise of Ezekiel 38 and 39 that all nations will know that God is the Lord? The question is How do we relate to the fact that God is the Lord? That God's glory will be vindicated. That God's purposes will be justified. That God will be glorified in all of his creation. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we find here. This is is the point. This is what our interpretive context is pointing us unto. Every knee will bow. Every claim of God will be validated. God's right to be worshipped will be found. We'll find every man as a participant. But there are two very different dispositions in which every knee shall bow, aren't there? Two very different circumstances within which every tongue will confess Jesus Christ to be Lord. Two very different manners in which God's Holiness will be justified. The first manner is the manner that we are called unto. The manner that the Word of God compels us unto. It's the manner of obedience. It's the manner of submission. It's the manner of bowing your knee willingly and humbly to the Lord. When God's creation knowingly and willingly submits himself to the promised mercy and grace of God by accepting His Lordship. But there's a second disposition and that's a disposition whereby God's creation knowingly and willfully rebels against his sovereign Lordship. bears the consequences of their rebellion and at the end of all things bows the knee anyway. At the end of all things confesses with their tongue that Jesus is Lord anyway, but without the added benefit of reward. Instead they receive destruction They receive punishment. Gog and Magog, whoever they may be, wherever they may be from, reflect the reality that there is no man, no angel, no beast who will not spend eternity reflecting upon the glory of God. Only Gog and Magog and those that rebel will spend eternity bearing out the glory and the holiness and the righteous wrath of God in the lake of fire. And those who align themselves with God will spend eternity bearing out His glory in the heavenly Jerusalem. As would be the deepest desire of our hearts and by the grace of God, we would desire that God's glory is expressed in each person in this room through our obedience through the marks of the Lord's redemption and mercy and grace in our lives as we walk in obedience to Him. or for others, and according to God's word, for most in this world, God's glory will be expressed in them through His righteous judgments. Either way, however, what the Bible tells us is that God will be glorified. To this end, Paul describes man and his relationship with God in this manner in Romans 2 chapter 2. Speaking of God, Paul writes this in verses 6 through 11. God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient, continuous, and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. And that there is no respect of persons with God, and that God will be just, and that God will justify those that come to him by faith, and that God in these end of days, as we read in Ezekiel 38 and 39, as we connect it to Revelation chapter 20, will use the rebellion again of Gog and Magog to announce once and for all, once again, his lordship over all creation, this compels us to a choice. This compels us to make decisions. And of course, the primary decision is, are you in Christ? Have you come to the point in your life where you have recognized that Jesus Christ alone can save you from your sins? That you are a sinner. That you are the wages of sin is death. You have been separated from God by your choices, by your sin nature and that you cannot be reconciled to God on your own. That there is no amount of good works, that there is no amount of money, that there is no amount of religious devotion, there's no amount of morality that can get you to God. But that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. On the cross... God made His Son to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God took His uh, His wrath against our sin, and He poured it out on Jesus Christ, so that for those who will accept it, our sin might be removed from us, that we might have fellowship with God. That means we might be right with God. Have you made that choice? Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Have you come to the place where you recognize you're a sinner, where you recognize what Jesus did on the cross? And then finally, that you recognize what Jesus did after the cross. That not only did he die on the cross to save us from our sins, but he rose again in victory over death, in victory over hell, in victory over the grave. That it could not keep him, and he promises that all who will believe on him, that death will not keep us. If you've never made that choice, that's choice number one. That is the foundation that is the essential. That is the difference between your name being written in the Lamb's book of life or your name not being found in the book of life. And as we read last week in Revelation 20, and all whose names were not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. But it does not just compel us to get on the right side of God as it relates to being born again, as it relates to eternity and hell. It compels us finally to live on the right side of God. And this is actually what we see in Philippians chapter 2. I read to you verses 10 and 11, which says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2 continues, however, and Paul uses this statement to exhort us in verses 12 through 16 in this way. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, Not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Because God is God, and knowing particularly through events such as that with Gog and Magog, that God will be vindicated, we therefore compel ourselves to obey Knowing that as we submit, God works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That as you submit to the Word of God, as you submit to the Lordship of God, as you submit to God in you, He gives you the will and the capacity to obey Him. And so we do all things without murmurings and disputings, with contentment. We live blameless and harmless to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world, which is living in darkness. Because right now, this world is headed toward the very end that we just read in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we hold forth the word of life. We shine as lights in the world for all to see. We live in this world in commission, following our Lord Jesus Christ, blameless, harmless, that in this day, in this day, we will not be ashamed. So that in that day, we will not be ashamed. We may rather rejoice, for if we do these things, we will not rest among those who will vindicate the character of God through judgment, but rather we will be among those who, who will vindicate the character of God through mercy. May it so be in each of our lives. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.